all of us being theologians because that's what a Christian is. A disciple means learner. Disciple means pupil. That means we're supposed to learn, and if we're uncomfortable with learning, that's our problem, not our advantage. This is not about different types of Christians. We're all called to keep doctrine central. I remember meeting a Moody student once, and while I was at Moody, and and, uh, this student was dropping out, and the student just told me, look, we're in class, and we're talking about these theories and, and theologies, and these people say this, and this camp says that, and look, I just want to love Jesus, so I'm going to drop out and I'm going to go love Jesus. And uh, I don't remember exactly how I cautioned the student then. I did, but if, but if I were to hear that now, I, I, I would want to say, uh, I, I really am glad that you want to love Jesus. Which Jesus? What does Jesus say? What does Jesus teach? How does Jesus say we're supposed to love him? I'm not trying to be picky, but you said you want to go love Jesus. What does that look like? Jesus teaches his disciples to go make disciples by teaching them all that I commanded. Well, what did he command? What did he not command? See, I think our, our, the, the, the instinct for many of us is like, oh, the debating. There's theology leads to debating and arguments. Yeah, that's true. But what I want to ask you is, are there some things worth debating? Are there some things worth arguing for? Now, many of us, we, as, as much as we want to avoid debates, if somebody talks about your favorite sports team and tells you the greatest player on that sports team of all time is so-and-so, and you disagree, you'll probably start debating right then and there. Well, 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 what about these stats? What about these statistics? No, 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 you have to remember the player played in his time, and in this time there was this. Yeah, but we're talking about all time and back and forth. Politics. Now, many of us will find it very easy to engage in those things because we see that it's worth it. If we vote the wrong people in office, the country will go the certain way, and if the country goes a certain way, these are the bad things that are going to happen, so then we see it's worth debating and fighting over. Now, there's a nasty way to debate, and there are civil ways to debate, but is it worth arguing? And as much as you want to say, look, I just don't like to argue. I'm not an arguer. Okay, if your best friend is accused of murder, and you know for a fact they didn't do the murder because you were there, when they were doing something else? Are you going to be like, no, 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 I'm not going to take the witness stand. And like the, the lawyers are arguing. There's gavel slamming people. You know, too much arguing, just forget it. No, some things are worth arguing about. Now, if politics are worth it or sports are worth it or a falsely accused friend is worth it, God's word is worth it. We've got to get it right. We've got to get it straight. Now, that doesn't mean we can figure everything out. That doesn't mean every Christian should agree on every single thing, but there are core things that are too important to just leave behind. It's too important to say, I'm just not an argue type of Christian. I'm not a bookworm type of Christian. We'll leave that to other people. I'm just kind of a feely lover type person. Uh, no, thinking precedes loving. Belief produces behavior. And so what I want to do is ask you to turn to Titus. We're, we're not going to go through many verses in Titus. And if your finger muscles are used to flipping to 1 Timothy, you go next to 2 Timothy and then Titus right after that. A short letter, also from Paul, also to an apostolic delegate, somebody who's ministering. Uh, this time, not Timothy was in Ephesus, Titus is in Crete. So these are real people, a real place, real churches. 
And Paul wants him to, Titus to set things in order in Crete, just like he wanted Timothy to set things in order in Ephesus. So what's he going to emphasize? Now, if we said, look, doctrine is important for some churches to really focus on, and other churches and other places, look, they have, they have bigger fish to fry. No, he's writing to a different apostolic delegate in a different area, uh, known for sinfulness, and his remedy is doctrine. You'll see in verse 5, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order. Well, how do you do that? Well, you appoint elders in every town as I directed you. What kind of elders? Well, people that are above reproach, the husband of one wife, children are believers. They're not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, an elder, a ruler, as we talked about, those words that mean the same person, is God's steward, Right? And this person must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. So there's all the character stuff. But what's the key competency? Here's how the character should look. What should the competence, a competency be? Well, verse 9, uh, when he told first Timothy, in 1 Timothy uh, 3, he said he needs to be able to teach. Here, the way he puts it is he says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Nothing about charisma, nothing about personality, nothing about leadership skills, nothing about ability to organize uh, a group or to produce uh, growth in a church. He's got to have his doctrine right so he can have, help other people have their doctrine right. Why? Because what's the most important thing for a growing believer? Uh, truth. We say, no, 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 the emphasis should be living out the truth. Well, how do you live out a truth if you don't know what the truth is that you're supposed to be living out? It precedes action. So if you're going to be an action-oriented Christian, if you're going to claim, well, I'm a practical-minded person. Yeah, practically-minded is great. But what are you practicing? Right? This has to be taught in churches. This has to be taught in Ephesus. This has to be taught in Crete. This has to be taught in Itasca. This is what's central and core to a healthy church. Now what I want to talk to you about is how doctrinal statements, you know we have one, right? Hopefully when you first came to CFC, you looked on our website and you say what we believe and you read through that to make sure we're not some cult increasingly churches hide their doctrinal statements. And I think this is a troubling trend. I think the idea is, look, we just don't want to put anybody off. Um, well, some things are worth putting someone off about. We're, we're going to preach Jesus here. This is not, this is not a synagogue. This is not a, a Mormon temple. Why, why, why would we hide that fact? This is what we believe. And so doctrinal statements are standards that guide our understanding of the Bible. This is why they're important. Doctrinal statements are important, not because, well, churches should have one, you know, in a drawer somewhere. No, doctrinal statements are important because they guide our understanding of what the Bible says. That takes some unpacking. But first, I want to show you how we get that from Scripture. There are many places we can go, but I think this spot right here is a good one. First Timothy, uh, or in Titus 1, where he says that the elders, the overseer, must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. Do you see that? The way it's taught, 
you can't hold to the word the way you feel like it, the way you woke up this morning, the dream you had last night. No, as that has been given to you, brother, if you're, if you're going to be an elder, you hold to it the way it's been given to you. What does that mean? That means there's a teaching that the apostles have given to the churches, and any elder that's going to function in Crete has to be aware of how the apostles are teaching the Scripture. In other words, it's not just to hold to Scripture by itself. As long as you have a Bible in your hand, you got it, brother. You're good to go. No, the Bible in your hand and with your understanding of how the apostles taught the Bible that's in your hand, that you can't just make from it whatever you want. And we all know that's how cults start. They have Bibles. They use the Bible. And oftentimes they don't use some other translation. They take the translation that you're holding in your hand and they do some other stuff with it. So... He wants the elders to be aware that there's teaching out there and that that teaching should control how they handle the trustworthy word. It's not because the word is untrustworthy and you need other people's opinions. The word is trustworthy itself, but people are messed up. I can misinterpret something. So I have to be aware of other, how trustworthy people have in, interpreted the trustworthy word. And so there's this teaching that goes along with scripture to help us understand scripture and to make sure that we're not going off the rails so this is what the elders are supposed to do they're supposed to be of good character and they're supposed to be able to handle the word as it's taught the elders have scripture but they are aware of the teaching that the apostles have handed down to them and this is in part to protect from false teachers who also had scripture Look at verse 10. I mean, these people, clearly, they had access to the Old Testament scriptures and the letters that are, that are floating around that would eventually become part of the New Testament. And he says, For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Where do they get circumcision from? Scripture. They just misuse it. Well, they must be silenced in verse 11. Why? Because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. So both the false teachers and the overseers have Scripture, but one of them is supposed to teach according to what's been taught, and the other group takes Scripture and teaches it in a way that's contrary to what's been taught. You see? So if we say, well, we don't want doctrinal statements, we just have the Bible, that's a problem. That feeds into sort of a Lone Ranger Christianity where we can make up stuff as we go. So Titus is told to teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. You see that right at the top, too. Don't be like the false teachers, but see that first verse in chapter 2? As for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. That assumes you know what sound doctrine is. That you teach according to it. it. It helps you rein in your interpretation so you're not all over the map and you're not coming up with strange myths and theories that end up damaging families, including your own. It's to protect you. Now you might say, uh, you know, that's the problem. How do we know what's the right doctrine? How do we know what's the right teaching? See, here's where the Roman Catholic Church will step in and say, see, see? you should have never defected. Protestants, you should have never defected because the Pope, right, the, the, the now apostles, 
Peter and the apostles passed the torch down. Their office was passed down, and so the Pope today has Peter's office. Right, The apostles' offices went to these church leaders in the Roman Catholic Church, and they'd be like, look, this is why you all have so many denominations. Everybody comes up with their own thing and f- keeps splitting off into new denominations. Split, 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 split. We control that because the church leaders control the interpretation of the text. So you have two authorities, the Bible and the o- official interpreters of the Bible, church tradition and those who hold those offices. Now, it's easy for us to scoff and be like, ha dumb, that's dumb, you know, Catholics, they got it wrong. Is there something to the constant splitting of denominations, though? We have people now who would be comfortable splitting themselves off from an actual congregation and just attending a quote-unquote online church. Which online church? Whichever one I feel like that morning, honestly. There's nothing controlling the decision. There's no togetherness in it at all. I think we shouldn't be too quick to, to just sort of like, well, I don't want to listen to the, any critique from a Roman Catholic church. No, I want to listen to the critique. Because it bites. And the reason why it bites is because it's kind of true. When we run off in different directions, interpreting things however we want, it becomes a mess. Now, truth be told, Roman Catholic Church have their own denominations. Just because they call them rites doesn't mean that there aren't multiple expressions of the Roman Catholic Church. But there is something to church authority that I think Protestants lose. We struggle with church discipline because we're like, you don't have the authority to do church. We struggle with church membership. It's too much authority. It's too controlling from the top down to have membership, discipline, That's so Roman Catholic. No, it's the Bible. Roman Catholics may do it wrong. But authority, togetherness, is part of what was given to us in Scripture. You can't do Matthew 18, the process in Matthew 18. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look it up later. You can't do Matthew 18 if there's not an organization to church, if there isn't some authority within the church to appeal to. So Protestants, from the beginning of the Reformation, never wanted to say, no more church authority, no more interpretation stuff. Everybody go read the Bible on their own, and whatever you come up with, that's cool for you. The Reformers would be rolling over in their graves if they heard us talk like that. And so that's not what we mean. So it's easy to see the objection. Roman Catholics would say, that's why you need church fathers today, not just in the past. Some people now to say, no, this is the correct interpretation Well, here's where creeds function. This is why we get creeds and confessions and why they're important. Because even though we wouldn't say it's the apostolic accession that we have, essentially we have apostles today to appeal to, we wouldn't say that. But rather what we do have is successive, successive generations of the church writing stuff down so that next generations can look back and not reinvent the wheel all the time and see that there's a body of truths that the church has held to for a long time. Not because someone sitting on some ecclesiastical throne said it's true, but because the church, churches have said this is true from the beginning. They've affirmed, we believe this to be true. And that's where creeds come in. Creeds are statements that serve as doctrinal standards. Okay, Creeds are statements doctrinal statements that serve as standards for us to say, okay, am I off the rails when I interpret this? 
if I'm reading scripture and I go, oh, I think it means this. Is there anything to check that with? Yes, there are things to check that with. Creeds that churches have affirmed from the beginning. Now, the word creed comes from the Latin word credo, which means I believe. That's why the Apostles' Creed, for instance, starts uh, each of those sections with, with I believe. Uh, and after the apostles uh, died, creeds became more and more important as false teachings crept into the church. And so you see the earliest creeds are pretty short, pretty simple. The earliest one, we put the insert in your bulletin, the Apostles' Creed. Uh, and then from there on, the Nicene Creed and, and A.D. 325, fuller, better, I would say. Um, but because certain heresies were coming up. And they're like, well, the Apostles' Creed isn't enough. We need to chisel some of these other things out. And then from there, creeds would get more specific. And that's good. It's not because they got it wrong earlier. It's because as false teaching creeps up, they would, say, they would put these defenses there to say, no, if you're going to interpret Scripture correctly, you have to understand the Trinity like this. You have to understand the birth of Christ like that. You have to understand that He's coming back like this. And I find that to be extremely helpful. I was debating with a, a brother one time about the resurrection of the saints. And this brother was believing that there really isn't a resurrection of the saints. It's just our spirits just can kind of continue on. And I'm like, uh, scripture verse, scripture verse, scripture verse, scripture verse. And he's kind of like, well, I don't know. And I'm like, that, I mean, that's the Apostles' Creed, brother. The Apostles' Creed ends with this resurrection piece. He's like, does it? Now, that doesn't mean scripture weighs more for him. But to understand, if I don't understand those scriptures a certain way, it's not, it, 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 I'm turning my back against the way the church has interpreted it since like the year 70 AD, right? That's a big problem. So. Creeds are statements that help us. And the Apostles' Creed, the Apostles' Creed contains elements of statements that date as early as AD 100. So that's why we're going to walk through the Apostles' Creed. And the basic structure, outline of the Apostles' Creed has uh, determined the outline and structure of all the, most of the creeds and confessions that have followed them. The Nicene Creed, for instance, follows that same kind of structure. Those of you that are interested in the Reformers, when Calvin wrote his Institutes, he, he patterned it after the line of the Apostles' Creed. So it's been influential. It's been helpful to the church. And the Apostles' Creed is old enough and basic enough that the Roman Catholic Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, Orthodox Church and Protestants have held to the Apostles' Creed. Now you might go, well, why would we use it if Roman Catholic Churches and Eastern Orthodox Churches can agree with it? Well, because, because they agree with it doesn't mean we're in agreement with them on everything. But there are basic core truths that define Christianity to the point where if you don't at least agree with that, you've got some major problems. So creeds aren't designed to say everything about everything. They're designed to say something specifically. And the Apostles' Creed is a bare-bones, brief glimpse at the Christian faith. That's why I think it's important to walk through it. The Apostles' Creed is not all you should believe. And some will debate me on this. I don't think the Apostles' Creed is even sufficient to get someone saved. I mean, it doesn't have the response piece in there. There's not the, 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 there's not the real repentance piece in there. It doesn't really make clear sanctification or how I even get righteousness. How do I get righteous? It, it, it hints at it. It gets it. The building blocks are there, but it's, it still needs explanation. So the Apostles' Creed is not the end-all, be-all by far, but 
the Apostles' Creed does serve as a starting point. So what I want to do is uh, read it to you. And uh, as I read it to you, I'm trying to find what I did with it. Here it is. You have the inserts in your bulletin. And I don't want to ask you to stand and read it with me. What I want to do is as we walk through it in the next several weeks, as I unpack each piece and you go, I understand that. Yes, I believe that. Then you can join me in reading that part. So by the end of the series, we can read the, the creed together. Uh, several parts here need explanation and unpacking. And I think we really shouldn't stand and recite it together until we understand what we mean when we say that. But I want to read it to you so you see what we're talking about, what we have in front of us. And this is the contemporary version. So if you're used to another version and you want to know why it was uh, adjusted, you can look that up or wait for us to, when we get to it in a sermon. But it reads like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Again, doesn't tell us everything we need, but it has some key points there. So when somebody tells you, well, I don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you go, man, the earliest creed you disagree with that. Start getting them thinking, are they really holding to the word as taught? So we might say, okay, why should we use these? There's two reasons why we should use creeds and two reasons why I think we should recite them together in church. Stand together and recite creeds together. Two reasons. And one, it helps protect us from error. Again, no creed protects from all errors, but they're built to protect us from going off the rails. And so the reformers taught that you need creeds, which is interesting because many of us have been taught that the reformers taught sola scriptura. Right? How many of you heard the term sola scriptura before? Okay. How many of you heard scripture alone? Okay. That's, that's what sola scriptura means. Scripture alone. But for many of us, we've been taught or maybe taught wrongly or have misunderstood that to mean the Bible only and I don't need to read anything else which is never what that meant. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone means that Scripture is the final authority. Well, if it's the final authority, are there other lesser authorities? Yes. Yes. That's what I'm doing right now. If we didn't need anything else, if we didn't need explanation, what in the world are we doing here every Sunday morning when I stand up here for however long? What are we doing? We're saying somebody needs to go study what other people have said, go study the language, study the context, and help us understand this. And if I go wrong, you all can correct it, but by and large, you're supposed to be able to trust that I'm doing homework and, and bringing it to you as a help, right? And as, in as much as the things that I'm saying and explaining make sense of the word, it's authoritative. So therefore, 
the preaching of the pastor is authoritative in your life as long as it surrenders and to and matches God's word, which is the final authority. But sola scriptura does not mean the Bible is the authority and everything else is just opinion, take it or leave it. No, if it matches what scripture says, if it really explains what scripture is doing in that page, then you're supposed to go home and do it. Not because Lucas is authoritative, but the preaching of the word is authoritative. That's an important distinction. Because if something happens to me, there's a void here. Somebody needs to be uh, teaching here. Elders have to take that role. And so creeds help protect the church from doing that wrongly and protect families and persons in the church from buying into things that are untrue. Scripture controls the creeds. The creeds don't control Scripture. That's a big difference. But the creeds are important because you're not the sole interpreter. You don't get to make up Christianity as you go. You need to recognize you're part of a larger body, and the body weighs in on the correct interpretation of Scripture, not special people wearing funny hats sitting on thrones, but the priesthood of all believers. And so after a sermon, if one of you says, but I saw this word here, I'm listening to that. I'm not like, hey, I wear the robe around here. Haven't you seen my scepter in the office? No, that's not the answer. My answer is, oh, let me look at that again. I may have gotten it wrong. So how can someone from the pew correct someone that's preaching? Well, if you point to Scripture and the interpretation was off, Scripture controls the creed, not creed controlling Scripture. Well, why are they necessary and helpful? Well, they're still necessary and helpful because they're guardrails, right? If the church for generations has said that there's a resurrection of the body and somebody comes up to you and says, hey, we're starting a a house church and one of the main things we're teaching through right now is that there's no resurrection of the body. Yeah, that's not a house church, man. That's a house cult. And you know that right away because of creeds that have explained it to you this way. It's not true because a creed says it. The creed says it because the Bible says it. So creeds can be adjusted. Creeds can be edited. But over time, we want to be careful with those edits and make sure that it matches what Scripture says. In fact, one of the reasons why I chose the Apostles' Creed is because I think one of the lines in there needs to be explained, possibly edited, as proof that Scripture is first, not creeds. But it's helpful for us to know doctrine and know theology so that it protects us from false interpretations that are egregiously wrong and scripture teaches that we need teachers doesn't it scripture teaches us that we need teachers so for instance uh, the elders passages in first timothy 3 titus 1 one of the ways you put churches in order is to get teachers in there right i mean that that's the emphasis in paul's letters when paul writes to the ephesians in ephesians 4 he says that christ has given gifts to the church and what gifts did he give to the church apostles prophets evangelists shepherds and teachers There's nothing in there about program directors, you know, uh, event organizers, social media gurus, right? It's teachers. Each of those functions teach. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. They all serve a teaching function to take the word and explain it to people. Those are the gifts that Christ gave the church. And when Christ is looking at churches, 
He's not going how big, how many, how much, right? He's looking, are you teaching what's right? And so when we read those letters in the beginning of Revelation, he's like, here's what I love about you guys, and here's what I'm really worried about. Oftentimes what he's concerned about or commending to them is how they're handling false teaching. So we don't want, we want to be a biblical church. That's what it's going to look like. One more, Colossians 3.16. You remember, uh, it's referenced in your bulletin when it talks about why we sing. But it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, comma, teaching and admonishing one another. This is what you're supposed to do as a church. Teach each other. Teach and admonish one another. Well, creeds help us do that. So the question is, do we do this in isolation or do we do this in community? Well, in Scripture, when we read it, it's always done in community. Right? Appoint elders, plural, in every town. Teach and admonish one another. We do that with one another. It's always done in community. It's not done in isolation. So then the next question is, if it's not done in isolation and it's done in community, is it just our community? Are we always reinventing the wheel every generation? Let's figure out this Trinity thing. It's been figured out. We climb on the shoulders of interpreters that have gone before us. Not that we can't question them. We should question them. But we don't just throw it away like, oh, people in the past, they were so dumb. No, we need to learn from the church in the past that we can climb on the shoulders of them and continue to hammer out truths as we face new things and, and challenge They're never really truly new, just new ways in which they're delivered. I love this quote by Jay Packer that I wrote down. He says, Christianity is not instinctive to anyone, nor is it picked up casually without effort. Right? So it, it's not something that's just going to pop in your head while you're sleeping at night. It's something that takes work. And the work that it takes is to learn. It's a faith, he says, that has to be learned and therefore taught, which leads us to the positive reason. It protects us from error. It teaches us what's right. And it helps us to press on in the Christian faith. It helps us pass on the Christian faith. What do you teach your kids? If you're evangelizing somebody, what, what do you teach them about the faith? How do you answer their questions? Well, doctrine helps you with that. Doctrine is useful in personal evangelism. Doctrine is useful in family devotions. If you think, man, I, I don't, if I had a family devotion, we sat around the table and all the kids are looking at me, I wouldn't know how to lead it. Probably because you don't read. Walk them through something. Walk them through a faith statement. Learn how to explain it. Most faith statements have proofs. In other words, scripture verses that they got that statement from. Go look it up and go, yeah, I see how it's talking about that. And explain it. Explain it to your family. Explain it to your coworker. Scripture, uh, doctrinal statements help us, and they're useful by guiding your own reading of scripture. As you're reading scripture, it might feel like you're just getting lots of facts, kind of random facts, but... Doctrinal statements give you categories, boxes, and you go, oh, this, this is from this box. This connects to this box. I get it. It helps you organize the stuff that you're reading because Scripture is not laid out systematically. Scripture is laid out uh, narratively. But it helps us to have a, a system, categories, and files. What file does this one go in, right? This is, help, this is describing God, what he's like. And that's important for you. That's helpful for you so that you can be a teacher in your own context. I think creeds are something that we can recite together to remind ourselves of our unity. Christian Fellowship Church is not the church. Right? We, we're organically, we organically belong to a bigger church that is universal. 
and they read these creeds as well. And so this is why we read our, our faith statement at our members' meetings. This is why in membership classes we go over our faith statement. We want to make sure you understand this stuff. So we should embrace standard Christian creeds in order to learn God's word so we can teach it, so we can protect it. Here's a few applications really quickly. I think this is how we should view our singing in church. I think songs that we sing in church are basically supposed to function as anthems of the faith. They're, they're truths that have been put to song that we proclaim together as being true. If that's true, if that's part of the function of why we sing, I, mean, I don't feel comfortable standing up here and asking you to stand and read something that we don't all agree on. I don't feel comfortable asking you to stand and read something that's questionable or is kind of true if it takes a lot of explanation. So why would I ask you to stand and sing something like that? So therefore, I think even in the history of our own church, we have veered from taking songs just because they're popular on the radio more into taking songs that are doctrinally sound to the point where I could care less what it sounds like. Well, that's kind of boring. Can we get something more uppity? Yeah, we'll get something more uppity when these uh, skinny jean-wearing, uh, weird haircut dudes start writing the stuff, start reading their Bibles. I remember growing up listening to Rich Mullins and a lot of his songs, I don't know if they transferred directly to congregational singing, but what I did appreciate about Rich Mullins, and there's faults in his theology, of course, maybe not of course, but I would say, what I appreciated about his writing is when you're listening to one of his songs, you can tell what scripture he was meditating on when he wrote it. That's what songs should be like. Songs should be taking you back to scripture so you go, oh, I know where that's from. I get that. So it's showing us what we believe about scripture, and it's not just the same three or four metaphors of rain and flood and everything is mercy and grace. Like, yeah, God is about mercy and grace, but he's about a lot of things. Do we ever sing about omnipresence? What scripture makes clear, do we ever sing about omniscience, that he knows all things? The fact that he's immortal, invisible, God only wise. Or do we let hymns that make those things clear fall by the wayside because they don't bop? That's a problem. Doctrine first, feeling second. I think we need to be picky about the songs that we sing. I think we've been doing well with that, making sure that our songs that we sing are things that we can affirm and not have to stumble over ourselves apologizing about. Secondly, I want us to be a learning church. I want us to learn from previous generations so that when our church offers ways for you to learn, I want you to jump at it. And I want to be known a teachy church. Why? Because we need something to differentiate us? No, because every time I open the Bible, that's what it's calling us to do. If you go on Amazon and put in the search engine, like how to do church or church planting or something like that, I want to say most of them, I don't want to say all of them, but I, I can't think of one that puts doctrine at the center. It's all about how to gather people, how to get the budget in order, getting teams, budgeting, marketing, branding, 
It's kind of a how to start a business book just with Christian language in it. And that's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be making disciples. Disciples is a student. That means students need teachers. And the teacher shouldn't just be the elders. It should be each of you. As you grow and as you learn, you pass the faith to the people around you. We teach and admonish one another. Are you stuck? When's the last time a truth or a doctrine blew you away? Took you deeper? Or helped you understand something, unlock something, and go, oh, that really was confusing to me before. There's clarity now. I want to challenge you to move a little bit beyond the pamphlets, the printouts, and the blogs, and get into books. Old ones. They don't have to be old, but a lot of the old ones, they're classics for a reason. You know those books that you hear other older Christians always talking about, and you're like, man, I've heard that before. Pick it up. And maybe go one page at a time. So when we hand out books here, if your hand wasn't quick enough, write it down. Or check it in the bulletin if it made it into the bulletin. And and go, you know what, maybe I'll check that out. I want you to learn. When our church offers courses, if you're available at that that meeting time, jump, jump to it. Get to it. I sometimes feel like maybe if we just offered more practical things, And it's not that practical things are bad. I just want us to make sure that we get the doctrine right because those things are the foundations to the practical things. It's fun to pick out curtains. It's fun to pick out countertops and new cabinets. But if your house is on a messed up foundation, none of that stuff matters. (laughs) Let's get the foundation right first. Finally, learning doctrine, understanding creeds, helps you answer questions that people have. Your children should be asking you questions, and you shouldn't just be punting it to the youth pastor. Learn how to answer those questions. And most children are insightful enough to ask questions that will uh, take you beyond what you know how to answer right away. And that's good. Go look it up. Go learn and respond to it. It helps you answer questions over lunch when you're talking with a coworker who's not a Christian. So here's an example. Your child, a co-worker, a neighbor, somebody asks you, why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? Now, many of us are like, oh, oh. I mean, that's just, what are you going to say? Like, I don't know, we'll find out one day in heaven, we'll see as we're, we partially know now. Okay, well, if you understood the doctrine of human depravity, you'd understand the problem with the question. Are there really good people? Can any of us look at anyone and go, that person is a good person? Well, if you understand what the church has taught for centuries about the doctrine of human depravity and our fallenness, you would have to say, no. Therefore, that is the wrong question. The right question is, why does God allow good to happen to bad people? Why does he dole out grace when we deserve wrath? That should be the problem. But we would never know that. If all we read was a little tabletop coffee books, if all you read was tweetable quotes from your friend's timeline, and you never got into doctrinal stuff. See, now you can answer that question and engage and cut right to the heart. The problem with the question is you think you're good. You think I'm good. You think because you do a few nice things, you're good. And that's not what Scripture teaches. People teach that from Scripture. They're wrong. They're wrong. 
So you see ways in which it helps you. And for many of us, we think, look, I'm just not a doctrinal person. Yes, you are. I'm not a theologian. I'm, I'm just not a theologian. Yes, you are. You believe certain things. And those certain things that you believe show up in the way you act and the way you behave. If, you've, if you pray things like, God, please forgive me for messing up this week. I'll get it right this coming week, I promise. I'll get it this time. Your doctrine of sanctification is shown. You think you can clean yourself up. You think because you were dunked in a tank and said a prayer that now you have the ability to uh, produce Christ in yourself. I'm not sure that's biblical. I think what the Bible talks about is, yes, you, you put an effort into Christianity. You're not supposed to just be a lazy Christian. But you're not supposed to pray, I got it now, thanks. Almost like leaving God behind in terms of power and enablement. Like, now I'm going to go do this now. It, it's no, God, I messed up this weekend. If you don't come and help me, if you don't fill me with your spirit, if you don't empower me, I will fail again. That's the biblical prayer. Help me. Not, I got this. Now, if you spend some time studying sanctification, it would help you understand that truth. Don't be afraid of big words. Sanctification, it means being made holy. How do you grow in holiness? Read the books that unpack these terms for you. Let's not be a church that throws away big terms and only stays at like a third grade level of words. If you come to church and you hear in a sermon a few words that you don't understand, that's fine. Keep coming back. You go to Starbucks and keep going back. Who the heck knew what size a venti was when it first came out? I don't even know how to order a size of a coffee. They're like, what size? I'm like, like that. Like that size. Oh, you mean a tall? Tall compared to what? I don't know. What's a tall? Whatever happened to small, medium, large? They create their own language. And it's sort of like this insider language that's cool. You get in, and once you know what really a venti is, and you know a pump of this and a splash of that, and you know what all that stuff is, you know how to make your own combinations. You're a cool kid. Now you're an, a Starbucks insider. See, customers didn't just give up because they saw the quality of the coffee, which I guess, I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know their quality of their coffee is debatable. If you come to church and you go, you know what, here's a church, they don't have a ton of classrooms, they don't have a ton of programs, there's not a million things to plug into, there's not, um, you know, new banners every single week, and, but I, I think they're trying to be honest about what the Bible says. I think they're not trying to pull the wool over my eyes, and they don't, uh, they don't condescend to me by assuming that I'm not interested in anything past a third grade understanding of the Bible. I want to put the bar here and challenge you to grow up to it instead of putting the bar here and then we'll do some other program for people who are hungry for steak. Now I'll cut the steak and I'll try to make sure it's in bite-sized pieces for everybody, but I don't want to be a Fruit Loops church. There's too many of those and they die of malnutrition. So let's be a doctrinal church. Let's be a teachy church. And let's not leave the teaching to one or two people in the church, but let's grow in our ability to teach one another so that in our growth groups, we're learning one another as well and interpreting the Bible and community together so that when the Roman Catholic Church says, hey, you guys don't know how to interpret things because you don't have the Pope, we can say, no, we, we interpret things together. And I don't sit at home on my couch alone going, this is the interpretation, but we meet together and we challenge one another. We even challenge our preacher. And once in a while he's like, you know what? 
you're right. I didn't see that. Good job. That fills my heart. Let's be a church that puts doctrine first so that we can be healthy parents, healthy friends, healthy evangelists, a healthy body of Christ. Let's pray.